Well, good morning. It's just so great to see all of you here this morning and uh, coming to worship the Lord and to hear His Word preached. And uh, if you do have a Bible, uh, turn there to Hebrews chapter 5. In case you have not been here before or uh, are visiting us or whatever, we are going through the book of Hebrews, slowly but surely. And... uh, Today we're in chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses as we uh, travel our way through this, this wonderful book. And uh, um, I don't know about you, but I have noticed uh, increased road work in the city of Stanwood. Am I the only one? And it don't matter what kind of angle I try to take to get here to work, it seems like no matter what, what, what route I try, there's a guy standing there with a stop sign saying, hold on, let the other cars through, right? And then you may go. And uh, it takes a lot longer for me to get to work than it, than it used to. I'm sure someday that'll stop. But just a lot of road work. And with road work comes warning signs, right? And I noticed one the other day. Um, it was homemade and probably made by one of the crew. It was about a half sheet of plywood. And someone had taken some pink spray paint and sprayed the word bump on it. <laughs> I thought, how, how much of a bump can be there when it's a half a sheet of plywood and some guy spray painted down there? Well, there was a big bump there, okay? <laughs> I found out rather shortly. And I hope my car is still in alignment. Uh, but there's other warning signs too. Uh, abrupt edge. Uh, people at work, all kinds of signs. I noticed them even this morning as we came to the church. Warning signs. Warning signs to keep us safe. Warning signs so that nobody gets hurt. That's really a lot of what the book of Hebrews is about. It's about warning signs. Warning, warning, warning. Warning us to remember that Jesus Christ is better than anything else. Amen? As we live in a society that is quickly devolving. It, it, and, and would any of us imagine two, three, four years ago that we'd be here now, ethically, morally, spiritually, even in the last three, four years, let alone the last five, 10, 15, 20 years, we are devolving. And we are devolving away from God and into a godless society. All the more reason to pay attention to this book because it warns us, stay True to your faith in Christ, no matter what. No matter how shiny the objects in the world look, no matter how hard it gets, you just want to go back to an easier style of life. No matter how much more convenient it is not to come here to church, not to profess your faith publicly, the warning is stay true to Jesus. Now, we might have a national revival, I hope and pray. I pray for that every day. But if we don't, And the times are going to get worse before Christ returns. We need to stay true to Christ, no matter what, and not go into our past, whatever it is, or whatever it was. And that's the whole idea here. Today we're going to talk about the high priest, the high priest in uh, Jewish culture, and our great high priest, Jesus, and how much better he is than the old earthly high priest for the Jews. Because you see, these Jewish believers in Christ, for the most part, in a church in Italy, things have gotten a little tough on them. 
by the unbelieving community around them and by their Jewish brethren that they used to fellowship with, they're getting persecuted. They're getting rejected. And they need to understand that what they have now in Christ is far better than what they used to have. And so the book is written to encourage them to stay true to their faith in Christ. It's so 2021, I can hardly believe it. You say, when I was back then, first century, Jewish Christians, and blah, blah, blah. Listen, it's getting tougher and tougher to walk with Christ in this society. And the tendency is when it gets tougher and less convenient and the heat is turned up that we might want to say, you know, it was kind of a lot funner and easier back before I became a Christian. That's the, what the devil wants to chirp in our ear. And so if we do anything in terms of our faith in Jesus, it's to stay with him no matter what. Okay, and so today the, the title of the message is Earthly High Priest or Heavenly High Priest. Earthly High Priest or heavenly high priest, okay? And so what we're gonna do is compare the two. Which is better, Jesus, the high priest, the great high priest, or something and someone else that we used to have? Is that pretty clear? Okay, let's go for it. Let's look at the earthly high priest first, verses one through four. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, who is this guy? I really was taught a lesson this week. It's amazing how many misconceptions you can have about the scriptures until you read the scriptures. And I always pictured the earthly high priest as some kind of like, oh, you know, those old paintings of Moses, you know? And he's looking at the Red Sea and the wind's blowing his beard back and his hair back and he's got these eyebrows the size of large caterpillars, you know? And he's glaring into the wind and, he, and, and got, he's got the gnarly hands, you know? And there's no smile on his face. And uh, that's kind of how I looked at the, the, uh, the high priest for the Jews. But just the opposite. Look at this guy. First of all, it says in verse one, he's selected from among men. Among men. Not among angels. Not above some, above some, uh, among some half supernatural guy. He's just a guy. He's a guy, okay? Human like the rest of us. That's who the high priest was. Human like the rest of us. Godly, but, but down to earth. A real person, someone that, that the, the, the Israelites could relate to. How wonderful God is to give the Jews a high priest that they could relate to. Relatable, like the rest of the flock. Experiences, experiencing life's stresses, ups and downs, and victories and failures. Godly man, but not an ivory tower kind of man. And then as he's described in the second half of verse 1 as that he is appointed to represent men in matters related to God. His function is to represent these Jews in matters relating to God. In other words, he loves going to God on the basis of his flock. And to offer gifts for sins, these were the bloodless gifts, like um, money and jewelry and valuables and bloodless offerings like the grain offerings and the, 
and for dedication and thanksgiving, but also he was to offer sacrifices for sins. And these were animal sacrifices for particular sins that temporarily atoned for the person's sin until the next time. And so if it was like me, I'm not going to put you in this category, but if it was like me, I'd be there with a new sacrifice every day for my sins. But the wonderful thing about the, the earthly high priest was he didn't go, you again? You were just here yesterday. He didn't do that. He represented them before God. He was a patient man, a loving man, a kind man. In fact, it says here that he was sympathetic towards men in verses 2 and 3. It says he was able to deal gently in verse 2. That word gently means uh, patient restraint. Patient restraint. It could mean to treat with mildness or moderation. It was a word that was used to describe conduct that was the middle ground between anger and apathy. I love that. The high priest had a middle ground that he struck with people that came to him between anger and apathy. What a great balance, okay? He dealt firmly but gently with people. Not a wimp, not afraid to tell the truth, but did it with a patient, loving mindset. And then it says, he was able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray. So if you were a Jew and you came to the high priest and you had blown it, he came and said uh, gently, hey, you know what, you're ignorant. No, he didn't say that. He would come and say, you have made a mistake. You have sinned against the Lord. He didn't scream at the top of his lungs and tell them how, how awful they were. Okay? And the, the, the word there, ignorant, means misguided. I love that. So he looked at sinners as misguided. Misguided. Being tempted and drawn away from God foolishly, okay? He was very, very kind, full of sympathy and sensitivity. And if that person was doing deliberate, unrepentant sin, he'd get a little bit more firm with them. But in general, he would say, you blew it again, but God loves you. Let's make a sacrifice for your sins, okay? What a great high priest to go to. And then it says in uh, the third part of verse 2, since he himself is subject to weakness. Now, this is the kind of high priest everybody wants. Why? Because he knows that he has feet of clay too. You don't want to go to some holier-than-thou priest. He knew that he was subject to weakness. And that is why it says here that he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for the sins of people. He was humble. He was humble. He knew he was imperfect bodily, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. He suffered from every difficulty that his people suffered. God had put him there. He was called to that position, but, but he didn't get a big head. I remember graduating from seminary, man, one of the greatest days of my life, walking off that campus. I'm not going to get into the whole story, but it was a lot of work. And as a senior, and, and, and I didn't know this, but every year, they had a little pond on the seminary campus for the seniors. And, 
And they put a sign up at, at the end of every year when the seniors graduate says, seniors, please do not walk on the water. <laughs> because we really, at least I can speak for myself, we were really kind of full of ourselves. You know, and there's nothing that will cure that more than a pastorate. We thought because we were theologically educated and had this degree that, you know, somehow, and, you know, we were humbled pretty, at least I was humbled pretty quick. That's not how the high priest was. He wasn't arrogant, filled with his own self. He knew he was subject to weakness and that he needed atonement for his sins too. He knew he wasn't any better than anybody else. And then verse 4 says, he was chosen by God. He was chosen by God. Okay, I, just, just an explanation here. If you were going to be a high priest, you had to be called by God, and you had to be called out of the tribe of Levi. Okay? The, 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 the high, human, high, earthly high priest didn't choose himself. Didn't choose, he was chosen by God, okay? Always. All of Israel's priests came only through divine appointment. It wasn't a career, it was a calling, okay? Now, if you tried to be a high priest, an earthly high priest, without God's calling, you were in trouble. I'll give you a couple examples. Korah, Korah in number 16, had 250 followers, and Korah decided that he was going to be a high priest, by burning unauthorized incense. Anybody know what happened to Korah? The earth opened up and swallowed him and 250 followers. You don't mess with God when it comes to the calling of the high priest. And some of the Israelites were ticked off about that. Why'd you do that, God? Then 14,000 of them were killed by a plague. God takes the, the high priest position, leadership positions, very seriously. And then you have King Saul who lost his reign because he impatiently assumed Samuel's priestly function in 1 Samuel 13. Saul lost his kingship because of that. Thought he'd just be a high priest for a day or, or more. And then Uzziah in first, uh, or 2 Chronicles 26, he wrongly utilized a priestly censor and he broke out with leprosy that was with him till his dying day. And so to be an earthly high priest... Um, that was a calling of God. I hope you're getting an idea about who this guy was. It's a beautiful picture here of who the earthly high priest was and how he was to function. Now, I want you to think about something before we get to our great high priest. This just flashed across my mind this week and I thought I'd share it with you. I want you to think about something. In addition to preaching God's word on a Sunday, in addition to leading a flock of people, in addition to vision casting and some other duties that are important for a, 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 a pastor, okay? In addition to those things, these same qualities of the earthly high priest are some of the same ones that we need to be looking for and praying about for our new pastor, okay? Just think about that. The things that were present in the earthly high priest ought to be some of the things that we pray for for our new pastor, not only that he can preach and do other things, but that he is like the earthly high priest. Okay, let's look at these really quickly. First of all, he's selected from among men. Okay, we want our 
new pastor that God will bring us to be a person like the rest of us. Not looking down from some perch at us, but a, a man who is like us, okay? Down to earth, a real person. Not hibernating in some office until Sunday, but someone that is with us, okay? He's the one that will admit that he experiences the same stresses, the same ups and downs, the same victories, the same failures that we experience. And he likes spending time with us. Now, that doesn't mean that he is not a spiritual person. We definitely want someone of high spiritual caliber, but he's not holier than thou. You with me so far? Secondly, he was appointed to represent men in matters relating to God. He will love us. He'll, he'll bring us before God. He'll be our advocate. He'll pray for us. He'll represent us in prayer. He'll intercede for us. He'll stand in the gap for us. Just like the high priest did then, so will our new pastor when we receive him. He's able to deal gently with us like the high priest was. You know, um, good pastors don't beat the sheep, they feed the sheep. You ever hear a pastor if you feel like you're getting a beating? No, I have, okay? And it wasn't because they were preaching the scriptures and being firm, it was just because they kind of enjoyed it. You know, we want someone who doesn't beat the sheep, but feeds the sheep, and that doesn't mean not saying hard things and tough things and confrontative things and to correct his flock, but it means that he doesn't beat his flock. I mentioned a while ago, I like a pastor that deals with me. I didn't, I didn't totally explain myself. I like a pastor who deals firmly with me and loves me at the same time. Some of the pastors that I've heard that I really love are the guys that do that at the same time. I think that's a sign of the Holy Spirit. When a pastor can uh, correct a flock and they feel loved at the same time, that's a sure sign you've got a spirit-filled preacher. Okay, and that's what we want. Okay, and then he uh, deals with those who are ignorant and are going astray. He, he, he how do I put it? He is firm but he's gentle. He's firm, but he is gentle, okay? I, I, I don't know if you have your Bible with you, but if you want to turn to Galatians chapter six, there's a great scripture there in the first verse of Galatians chapter six, and I want to just read that, because this is who we want our coming pastor to be. This is what the high priest in the Old Testament was like. It says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. You know that word gently there is, the, is a medical term for resetting a compound fracture. And so it means as a, as a pastor, when you go to someone in your flock that's erring, you don't go and hit them over the head with a coffee table-sized Bible. You go there and you gently but firmly, truthfully but lovingly, reset that bone so that they can grow and it gets stronger than it was originally. Amen, you with me? That's who we want. And then, I think we're on, I'm not even numbering these, but it says, it seems him, he himself is subject to weakness. Okay? 
He's subject to weakness. As the earthly high priest knew he was subject to weakness. He had feet of clay. We want our pastor to be humble. Humility is not weakness. In fact, humility is strength, isn't it? Humility is strength. It's strength under control. And that's the kind of pastor that we want, okay? He's humble, and he realizes he's no better than anybody else, but by the grace of God, he's in our pulpit. And then lastly, he must be chosen by God. Now listen, we want, as, as our search committee, and I know they already know this, so I'm preaching to the choir there, but for all of us, we want a person to come here to Cedar Home who's been chosen by who? By God. You know, you don't want someone to say, you know, I'd like to try this out. This looks like fun. You know, um, I think I might like this. You know, um, maybe I'll find myself when I'm a pastor. No, you don't want that. You want someone who has the call of God on his life and is able to articulate why that's true. Now, I want to move on now, but that was just something you can, some things you can think about when you're praying for our new pastor. Okay, certainly the preaching of the word and other things like that, that will become clearer as time goes along. But this is a kind of man, a kind of, kind of personality, the godly kind of person that we want to pray for. Now let's go on. Because as good as the qualifications for the earthly Jewish high priest were, they were nothing, nothing in comparison to the heavenly high priest, Jesus the Messiah. That's the whole point here. The whole point that uh, the writer is, is making to these beat up, uh, weary, uh, uh, tired, and thinking about going back to the old life that they had, this is the whole point. Why would you go back to a human earthly high priest when you can have a heavenly high priest like Jesus? And if you get one thing out of this whole book, by the time we're done with it in 2027, is that... <laughs> Just kidding. But one, I want you to read that sign when you come into church. And it says, Jesus is better. And I'm sticking with him until he re returns or I go to be with him first. Because there's no comparison. That's what the writer's trying to say. Why would you go back? It's not worth it. So let's look at our heavenly high priest now as we go into the Five, verses 5 through 10. What are the qualifications for Christ, our heavenly high priest? Well, first of all, as with the earthly high priest, but in a much more profound manner, he was divinely selected. That is, he was appointed by God. Look at verse 5 and 6. Um, so Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then if you f just kind of look up at verse 10, because this one goes with that. And he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So, now this is so much greater of an appointment or a uh, than, than the earthly high priest, and I'll tell you why here. Because... Jesus was divinely selected for two offices that, or positions that qualified him as the Messiah. And so the writer here to uh, these 
Hebrew believers that are kind of running out of gas and thinking, you know, the old life wasn't so bad. He says, Jesus, the high, your high priest, is the Messiah. Not the guy down there, down at the temple area that you go to every day and every once a year for the Day of Atonement, but um, uh, the Messiah, the one that Jews have been waiting for for centuries. He's has the ultimate royal office in verse five, okay? And it says, he, he, you are my son, today I become your father. That is a royal messianic uh, office. He's quoting Psalm two, verse seven, saying this high priest Jesus is the eternal king who is the Messiah. And then he calls him the ultimate priest in verse six. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, okay? That's a direct quote from Psalm 110.4, which without a doubt to the Jewish people who knew the word of God referred to Messiah. And we're going to have a lot more to say about the priesthood of the mysterious Melchizedek, um, except to say this. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek lived during the time of Abraham centuries before the Aaronic priesthood. And he was both king of Jerusalem, Salem, the Jeru was added later, king of Jerusalem and priest of the Most High God. And here's the deal. Melchizedek, in, 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 in the scriptures, there's no mention of the beginning or end of his life. Guess who he's a type of? Who? Christ. Because Christ had no beginning and he'll have no ending. It's really cool. We'll get into this in much more detail up in chapter 7. So Jesus is pictured here as both the divine eternal king and the divine eternal priest of God, infinitely uh, uh, far superior and starkly different to the priesthood of Aaron. These, this is being made as a, uh, as a, to, to, to tell these vacillating Christians to show the stark difference between their old high priest and Jesus, the divine priest, so that they would what? Persevere and not go back to whatever former life they have. You know, I tell you, I've said this before, I'll probably say it a dozen times before I'm done with the book of Hebrews. It tears my heart in half to see people be excited for Christ, committed to Christ, and then slowly draw back from Christ and go back to the life they had before Jesus. It is one of the most heartbreaking things that I as a pastor see. I've seen it here, and I've seen it other places where I've pastored. It hurts. It hurts a lot. And, and you don't want it to happen to anybody, but it does, and that's why there's a warning here for you and I. Don't go back to whatever we had before. Stick with it, no matter how hard the sledding gets. Second, Jesus was completely human, but without losing his divinity. Can't say that of an earthly high priest. It says, during the days of his life on earth. I love that. During, in verse seven, during the days of Jesus' life on earth. Through the incarnation, Jesus fully, completely participated and entered the human condition of temptation, trials, and struggles, feeling everything to the fullest degree that you and I will only ever feel in part. 
I don't care how depressed or disappointed or depressed or disappointed or pain-filled or regretful or uh, shattered, splintered, pruned, saddle-busted your life feels right now. It's only a fraction of what Jesus felt as a man here on earth. Which is why he could say, I know how you feel. Which is why we can go to him and know he gets, gets exactly where we're at. Isn't it great to have someone to do that with? I might have said this, I'm forgetting what I say in my other sermons now. I'm at that point in my life. I said, to ask Debbie, was it yesterday or today? Did I say this already? She said, well, no. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm going to say it anyway. It just fascinates me in John chapter 4 when Jesus is uh, going through Samaria that he walks up uh, to the woman at the well and the text says, and Jesus, weary from the journey or tired from the journey depending on which Bible you use. I'm thinking, wait a minute, he created earth and every other thing in the galaxy, and he's weary from the journey? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for feeling our weariness. Amen? Man, we got a great God, don't we? He feels everything we feel. What a great God to be able to go to. I mean, I'm honored if you come to me with trials and struggles, and I know you're blessed if I come to you with my trials and struggles, but we'll never perfectly know how each other feels, but he does. And it's good to share ourselves and with each other, but Thank you, Lord. And it says he offered up, verse 7, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And that just hit me this week. Jesus cried out loud. He cried out loud, really loud. Really loud. He experienced so many hard things emotionally. He cried out loud, just going through the, the, and this is referring to the Garden of Gethsemane, just in the scriptures where it talks about Jesus experiencing all this difficult stuff that you and I experience. It says in Mark chapter 4, I don't have these for the screen, but Mark 14.33, he was greatly distressed. Mark 14.34, he said, my soul was very sorrowful, even to death. Have you ever felt like you're dying? Has your soul ever been so sorrowful you can barely articulate it? Jesus had that in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14.35, uh, and 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And you feel like saying, God, remove these circumstances from my life. I can hardly stand it. Loud cries. Loud cries. And yet divine. Never lost one iota of his divinity. Much so much more than the human and earthly high priest. He is the divine, heavenly high priest. Truly God and truly man. How can you help but love a God like that? You can't. Okay? Christ asked that the cup was taken away, and guess what? It wasn't. It wasn't. But then eventually it was, because he rose from the dead. It may not seem like God's going to answer your prayers right away. But when we pray within God's will, he always answers our prayers. Maybe not in the time we want, 
may be extended through pain. We'll get to that in a second. But he'll answer them. Because Jesus was, wasn't just praying, take this cup away. He was also saying, raise me from the dead, Father. Raise me from the dead. And God did. And it says he was heard because of his reverent submission down in verse uh, 7. He was heard because of his reverent submission. He surrendered control to God in his time of need. Totally man and totally God. Now there's a lesson here. I want to I take a little bit of a rabbit trail. There's a lesson here. When you or I are in distress, okay, maybe once every 10 years, okay, um, or we're in trouble, or there's, we're confused about something, and we can't seem to get our bearings, or we're going through a difficulty, or <laughs> things like, I can really relate to this, we're going through circumstances that we would rather avoid, okay? And some of you are there right now. I would guess that we all are in some degree, okay, or another. And you don't know what to do or which way to turn. Pray, and God will get you through it, just like he did Jesus. If Jesus prayed in distress, so we should pray in distress, okay? God doesn't want us to panic. He wants us to pray, he wants us to pray intensely, specifically, and perpetually until he comes through with the answer, okay? At the prospect of bearing the weight of the sins of the world on his body, we're told that Jesus was praying so intensely for God to get him through this and that death would not be the end, but that he'd be raised from the dead, that he was sweating great drops of what? blood. Now that's intense prayer, and I'm not suggesting that that's the kind of intensity God's talking about for us, but I think perpetual, specific, and earnest, sincere prayer when we're going through difficult times is the prescription that God has for us when we're struggling with difficult odds and insurmountable situations and problems that we face, all of us, on a regular basis. Let me quote Dr. David Jeremiah, one of my favorite preachers. Anybody, have you, have you heard him preach? Yeah, I'm a little mumbling there. Maybe a few of you, but I really like this guy. He says, so the next time you're going through intense pain of some kind, almost more than you can bear, remember your great high priest in heaven has been there and done that on a full and complete level, bearing the entire weight of the sin of the whole world on the cross. So go to him in prayer. That's so easy to forget. And first get help elsewhere. But go to him in what is called in here, in, in verse 7, reverent submission. What that means is, it's, 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 it's giving God the control. And isn't that fun? No, it's not. It's hard to give our out of control into God's control. But that is what God wants us to do when we face difficulties like Jesus did. He's our model. The first place that we should resist doing things 
resist doing is getting on the phone. Not that that's wrong. To get help from our fellow believers, that's awesome. We need to do that. Have them pray for us. The first thing, though, is to go to God, give him control in reverent submission to him. Number three, it says in verses eight and nine that Jesus was made perfect through his what? I can't hear. It's not a trick question. Through his, uh, starts with an S, ends with a G. Through his suffering, okay. Interesting, isn't it? He was made perfect through his suffering. Does that mean Jesus was imperfect before he suffered? No. Okay? When it says he was made perfect through his suffering, doesn't mean that Jesus passed from disobedience to obedience or from imperfection to perfection. The idea is that he became complete in his human experience. In other words, that he could fully relate to our suffering and pain because he experienced the full range of mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical suffering that a human being could suffer on this earth through his rejection and flogging and beating and the cross. Jesus uh, experienced the full range of mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical suffering. I mean, I can't get over it. I can't get over it. Jesus had loud crying and tears. I, I, I took a little liberty with this and had in my margin here, I have an arrow pointing out, quote, he cried his eyes out. Would, you, would that be fair to say that? I'm not trying to play with the scriptures. It's just that's how God cried his eyes out? Any of you cry lately? I cry, you know. I just told you, you know, I got a piece of dust in my eye and I can't. No. I cry, sometimes alone, when, I, when we, we experience something that really hurts us. Jesus did too, okay? He knows how you feel. He knows how I feel right now. And yet he never sinned. And like us, but God, remaining God, the creator and sustainer, the lowly Jesus and at, was at the same time the Lord of glory. That's what makes him better than the um, uh, earthly uh, high priest. And, he atone, and, and as the perfect God-man, he atoned for our sins on the cross. So why go back to a high priest that's just a human being? The writer's telling to the Hebrews. And I'm telling you and I'm telling me, why should we go back to anything less than Jesus? Let's not do it. Let's draw the line in the sand. Say, I'm not going to strive a stake in the ground, whatever metaphor you want to use. I'm not going back. By the way, you're not going to want to hear this. I should just skip this and... No, I'm going to say it. It says, Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. Guess what? So are we. No amen there, and I don't blame you, okay? (laughs) God is perfecting you and I through suffering. There is no other way. Did you know that? It's true? You know there's a divine purpose for every trial and every pain and every disappointment, every delay that we experience. God's not doing it to torment us 
but to deepen our level of dependence, maturity, and faith, and hope, and trust in Him. Did you know faith is a spiritual muscle? And if it's not tried in difficulties and hardships, it never gets stronger. And God wants to strengthen our faith, our maturity, our uh, lives. And he uses trials and difficulties and disappointments and delays to do it. It's like that bumper sticker. I haven't seen this lately, but it says, God loves me just as I am, but too much to let me stay that way. Have you seen that? And I want to I just for your own and my own good, this scripture never gets old. Never, never, never. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy. Now joy, don't get the idea of some flower child skipping through a field of daisies, okay? That's not what joy is. Consider it pure joy. My bro- joy is an inward peace in spite of my outward circumstances. That's what joy is. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I, did you read that? Consider it pure joy. Have the Holy Spirit give you inner peace. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And one thing you can say with certainty is that when, 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 when we're, we're hit by that wave and, and when we're taken underneath and we wonder if we're going to be able to surface again and get air and so we're struggling, we can know that if we stay faithful to him and rely on his strength, we are going to get mature. And a, a mature Christian is a beautiful thing. An immature Christian is an ugly thing. But a mature Christian is a beautiful thing. And I, I want to qualify that. That doesn't mean a new Christian. Because all new Christians are somewhat immature spiritually, but it means someone who's never really gone through the deep waters and trusted God through it. Okay? And so just remember, the same way that Jesus was perfected through suffering, so too are we. And then last it says, he became the source of, not a temporary covering or temporary sacrifice of forgiveness like the earthly high priest, but he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He was the God-man, tempted completely, living perfectly, dying for our sins on the cross, raised bodily from the dead, offering us forgiveness, life, and fellowship with God now and forever if we believe him in faith. If we repent of our sins, Turn to Christ, acknowledge him as Lord and Savior who died on the cross for my sins and receive him into our lives by faith as Lord and Savior and prove that true reception by living, uh, aspiring to live an obedient life to him for the rest of our lives and persevering in him. He became that's the source of that eternal life. And that is the heavenly high priest. And again, just to beat a dead horse, that's what this writer's trying to tell these people. Why would you settle for anything less? One of the commentaries that I've used as I've gone through Hebrews is uh, Chuck Swindoll's commentary. And I don't use it every week, and, but sometimes I just say, you know, I'm going to see what he has to say. And he concluded this passage with a couple of thoughts. And I want to close the message with this. 
He says, this subject of Christ's perfect priesthood isn't some dry doctrine to be recited, but a vital truth to be applied. Let me share you three important thoughts regarding Christ's priesthood and how he meets our needs to help, our needs today. First, we need a priest who isn't prejudiced. Unlike the world's corrupt leaders and crooked institutions, Christ's perfect priesthood doesn't arbitrarily and unjustly discriminate. Paul wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for, all, for you are all one in Christ. And by the way, totally unrelated, that is the solution for the different races, creeds, and colors on this earth. Oneness in Christ. Hey, that's a whole subject there. On your knees before your perfect high priest, it doesn't matter whether you were born in privilege or poverty. It doesn't matter whether you have a PhD or a GED or whether they call you general or private. Nobody can pull strings with, manipulate or bribe our heavenly advocate. He is on your side making intercession for you. When we get up to chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Christ ever liveth to make intercession for you. Jesus is having a prayer meeting for you right now. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that the Father is talking to the Holy Spirit who lives in us because we're so weak, we don't even know what to say. They're having a prayer meeting inside of us. Christ is praying for you in whatever you're going through. It's, now, you have to wait till chapter 7 until we talk about that. <laughs> Number two, second, we need a priest who is permanent. Because we're full-time sinners, we need a full-time mediator. Because we face any moment's crises, we need an ever, every moment representative. Imagine if you could fellowship with God only by traveling hundreds of miles to a particular place at a certain time of year through a specific order of ministers. No, our high priest is everywhere present, never takes time off, is always ready to listen to our prayers. That's our high priest. Jesus. And then finally, third, we need a priest who is, I think this might be my favorite. We need a priest who assures us of our place. Only a priest who demonstrated perfect obedience and offered up a perfect sacrifice can give us the assurance that our place in him is secure. If Jesus were only a really good priest rather than a perfect priest, or if he were only an above average uh, sacrifice for most sins rather than the final sacrifice for all sin, then we would have room to worry about just how secure our salvation really is. But because he is the perfect priest, we can have confidence of our place of security in him. So as good as a guy this earthly priest was, he fell far short of the heavenly high priest, Jesus, who he was and is. So don't go back. Don't let anything stop you from holding on to Jesus. That's the warning here, and that's the blessing. File it in your memory as our society continues to devolve and offer substitutes for Christ that we should never give a second glance to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we honor you, and we... Um, I don't have a word to say what I really want to say. We honor you. We admire you. We respect you. We, um, we worship you. Uh, there's no um, 
There's no words that can say how far above humankind you are and how much of a human you were. Um, there is no other religion. There's no other system of belief that comes even millions of miles close to who you are. And Father, I just pray that we'd understand that, that you'd baptize us in an understanding of who Jesus is and share that with people that don't know him. And, and, and Lord, for those that like Jesus or who are being made more perfect, not perfect because on this side of heaven, none of us will be perfect, but who you are perfecting and maturing through suffering, I just pray that they would take a fresh, deep breath of your will and of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit and be revived that you have a purpose for what they're going through. And Lord, give us um, a man in the future who understands what we talked about today and who is that kind of person with those kinds of gifts. We're looking forward to it, Lord, that in, the, in some time in the future that we are going to have someone who will come in and help us enter worshiping our high priest. Bless him and his family as you prepare them for Cedar Home. And bless those here at Cedar Home that they understand that prayer and trust that you have a purpose is the way that Jesus acted and, 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 and the way that, that we need to, to act. We love you, God. Thank you for keeping us strong in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Go have a great Sunday.